This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on herpes zoster. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. The annual incidence of herpes zoster in the UK is estimated at between two and four cases per thousand population. And of course, it's much more common in old age. It can cause a range of complications, including post-herpetic neuralgia, herpes zoster of the eye, encephalitis, and disseminated zoster. So it's important that we get the diagnosis and management right. To give us more details about this problem and what we can do about it, we have on the line Professor Michael Rothberg, Center for Value-Based Care Research, Cleveland Clinic, Cleveland, Ohio. And importantly, Michael is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this condition. So Michael, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking, what exactly is herpes zoster infection? So herpes zoster is a reactivation of the varicella zoster virus, which causes uh, chickenpox. And uh, it's prior to vaccination, most people have contracted chickenpox in their childhood. Uh, nowadays, many children are vaccinated, and so uh, we'll probably see a change in zoster in the future. But right now, uh, most people who are going to get this are in their 60s, 70s, or 80s. And so they've already been infected with the virus. The virus r- remains dormant uh, in the uh, nervous system, and then it will come out uh, at times when the um, when when the immune system is uh, weakened for some reason, and so uh, we see this reactivation of the chickenpox. But rather than cover the entire body, uh, it will typically come out just in a single dermatome, and so that's typically what we think of as herpes zoster infection. It's not really an infection; it's a reappearance of an old infection. Thank you very much. That's that's very helpful. How do you make the diagnosis? So it's typically done as a clinical diagnosis. Uh, it has an appearance that is not usually hard to miss. It's uh, it looks similar to the chickenpox, uh, which is typically described as a dewdrop on a rose petal. So it begins with uh, a group of red dots, which then turn into vesicles. And so you have a, a, a vesicle on a, on a red base, and that's the sort of typical appearance. The difference between chickenpox, which is disseminated across the entire body, and zoster is that zoster will appear just in a single dermatome. And so it's pretty easy to spot. You're just going to have Uh, this cluster of vesicles that are limited to one side of the body. You're not going to cross the midline, and it'll be typically in the distribution of a single dermatome, though occasionally it can be in two or three dermatomes because the um, adjacent dermatomes could be affected. But typically, you'll see it just in a single dermatome, and and so it's a clinical diagnosis made just by looking at it. Um, If you are not sure Sometimes it could be just a few vesicles and you're not sure whether you're looking at zoster or the related herpes simplex virus. Uh, You can send the fluid for PCR uh, or for DFA, uh, but typically uh, there's no uh, diagnostic testing required. You can make the diagnosis just from looking at it. 
Fantastic, thank you. Um, which dermatomes are typically affected? So most commonly it's uh, on the thorax, um, but really any dermatome could be infected. And um, the ones that we're most concerned about uh, are the ones that uh, would involve the eye. Um, so that would be in the trigeminal nerve or uh, the ear. So those are the two where the damage to the nerve is going to be not only painful, and I think we'll get to that in a minute, uh, but also could affect sight or hearing. And so those are particularly dangerous uh, in terms of the side effects or the, the complications. Thank you. And you mentioned a weakened immune system. Are there any particular causes of a weakened immune system that might predispose to, to zoster or, or, or precipitate uh, uh, zoster infection? Yeah, so the most common is just immune senescence. As people get older, uh, their immune systems weaken. And so we see that zoster is much more common uh, as people age. You can get it at any age. Uh, some people get zoster in their 20s, but it's it's very rare uh, in the you know, 20s, 30s, 40s. It begins to increase in the 50s and really takes off in the 60s, and, uh, and it just keeps climbing. So that patients above 80 are probably at the highest risk. Uh, but then anything else that weakens the immune system can bring on zoster. So um, People who are on immunotherapy uh, for uh, things like rheumatoid arthritis uh, are more likely to get zoster, transplant patients. Um, really, anyone who's on any kind of immunosuppressive medication uh, is going to be at increased risk for uh, reactivation of this uh, virus. And last question on diagnosis. Can you tell me what are the common pitfalls in diagnosis? Yeah, so it's it's not typically a, a an issue in terms of missing the diagnosis. Uh, I think that the thing that's most uh, maybe the, the the most important thing to know is that the pain of the the um, of the rash I and mean, this begins with pain and then it uh, progresses to a rash, and uh, so the pain often comes first, and so people will misdiagnose it because of. Uh, they're trying to diagnose the pain and the skin overlying it may look normal or it may not be examined. Uh, but typically, that you know, if they've got pain in the chest, it could be uh, misdiagnosed as a, a, a myocardial infarction. Uh, pain in the back could be uh, misdiagnosed as a, uh, you know as as a back pain or sciatica. Uh, so. It's easy to misdiagnose the pain, but it will become apparent within a few days uh, as the uh, rash appears. So um, certainly always makes, it's always important to examine the skin uh, whenever you're uh, you know, considering a, a pain diagnosis. Okay, thank you. Um, let's move on to management. Uh, can you tell me what's the mainstay of management? So uh, the mainstay of management is uh, antiviral therapy, and we have three antiviral drugs that work uh, for this. Uh, one is uh, acyclovir, which has been around forever. Uh, and then more recently, uh, but still quite some time ago, we've got uh, valcyclovir and famcyclovir. They all seem to be about equally effective. Um, so it doesn't really matter which one you, you use. Uh, acyclovir is five times a day and the others are three times a day. So uh, typically we'll go with the uh, newer ones just uh, for patient convenience. Uh, it's funny to think of 
convenient being three times a day. Um, but that's really the only treatment that we have. And, and like any other antivirals, it's most effective if it's started right away. So the longer you wait, the less effective it's going to be. It's not clear that it's at all effective after 72 hours. So you really want to start uh, treatment as soon as possible. And uh, so as soon, as soon as you see that rash, um, then you're going to begin therapy and uh, it would go on for about, about a week. And what about pain relief? What would you recommend usually for pain relief? Yeah, so uh, just the sort of typical pain relief that you would use for any other uh, painful condition. So, um, you know, um, acetaminophen or ibuprofen uh, for pain that's not that bad, uh, all the way up to uh, opioids for uh, pain that's quite severe. So, um, the, you know, the, the extent of the pain can vary a lot from individual to individual. Uh, but the acute treatment is uh, is really just with uh, typical sort of pain relievers. And you mentioned eye involvement. Is, is management different if there's eye involvement? I'm, I'm guessing it probably is. Yeah. So, uh, again, because the, it's uh, possible to lose your sight from this, it's, it, it is something of a medical emergency. So if you see zoster uh, on the face, um, that involves the nose or the area of the eye, um, that's definitely going to uh, get a, a consult going immediately to uh, an ophthalmologist uh, because that is, a, that is an eye emergency. Um, similarly, if you've uh, got a zoster that's involving the ear, um, that would be um, typically also you know, Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. Uh, you may also have a paralysis of the face on that side um, that's going to get a consult to an otolaryngologist. But um, typically, you would start the same treatment, um, you know, right away. But uh, they might uh, qualify for intravenous therapy, and they're also going to probably get steroids, and they may get topical therapies. So I'd say that's beyond the treatment of a, a general practitioner, and that would be when you'd want to get a consultant involved, and as soon as possible because of the threat to uh, vision and to hearing. Okay, thank you. And I should have said at the start of the management section, we're assuming that we're dealing with a patient without immunocompromised. But but moving on from that, what if our patient were to be immunocompromised? Would the management change? And if so, how? Yeah, we're basically, you know, those are still the only drugs that we have. So immunocompromised patients are definitely going to get that therapy. Um, and they'll probably have a, a uh, more um, intensive um, observation period. Uh, the concern is that the uh, zoster could become uh, disseminated, which would give you, uh, you know, go back towards uh, chickenpox-like uh, thing where you would have zoster through the entire body. Um, it can cause an encephalitis. Um, so um, at the point that an immunocompromised patient would would uh, get the same therapy, which is the um, antiviral therapy, but they would also get a uh, very close observation to make sure that it doesn't become disseminated. Okay, thank you. Let's move on to a new section in, in management, management of post-herpatic neuralgia. Tell us about that, um, if you can, please. Yeah, so post-herpetic neuralgia is really the, the thing about zoster that's most dangerous. Or no, I'm, I don't know dangerous is the right word. It's, it's, it's the most concerning aspect of uh, her, herpes zoster. 
the the shingles or the acute attack uh, typically lasts only 10 to 14 days. And so even though it can be extremely painful, um, it, it's a self-limited uh, condition. And if you don't treat it, uh, it's, it's likely to resolve anyway. Um, but as uh, patients age, uh, they are more likely to develop a, um, a, long, uh, a longer version of this where the pain uh, or the neuritis goes on uh, and that can last for months and that's uh, called postherpetic neuralgia. So uh, typically the pain will be gone in 10 to 14 days, though quite a number of patients will have pain that goes on for a month or two months. Uh, but if it goes on for more than three months, then that's what we would consider postherpetic neuralgia. And um, there are different estimates for how common this is. Somewhere between, um, you know, at, at, at age 60, you're talking somewhere probably between two and and eight uh, percent of the population who gets uh, zoster will have postherpetic neuralgia. As patients get older, it could be as high as 18 to 20 percent of the patients developing this. So. Uh, it really is a concern uh, that patients are going to have long-standing pain, uh, and uh, a small percentage, probably about one percent of patients uh, in the older group, are going to go on to have pain that lasts for years. Uh, and so the the treatment can be frustrating. Um, there are a number of uh, treatments. Uh, for example, uh, gabapentin was developed uh, and and approved for this purpose. Um, others, uh, you know. Uh, Treatments for um, neurological pain can be tried, but unfortunately, none of them are extremely effective. Uh, and uh, I hope we'll get on to prevention at some point because uh, that's really been the mainstay of therapy. The part of that is because of the frustration with trying to treat this. Um, you know, postherpetic neuralgia is, is really one of those things that's hard to to treat effectively, and um, helping patients live with it can be really difficult. Thank you. Why don't we move on to prevention now? Um, tell us, tell us about prevention. What can we do? Yeah. So uh, you know, we've really been fortunate in that uh, we've got development of a, um, a zoster vaccine. Uh, actually, several vaccines that have come out uh, in the last uh, twenty years or so. And so um, the first uh, was a um, a live. Uh, uh, attenuated vaccine that was similar to the chickenpox vaccine, and it, uh, but at a much higher concentration. And so the idea was simply to um, uh, to give a larger concentration of the same um, virus to um, uh, get the immune system to to uh, recognize it and to keep it in check. Um, and uh, that was uh, relatively effective, um, and. Uh, by that, I mean uh, it would reduce uh, the probability of postherpetic neuralgia by about two-thirds, um, which is, uh, you know, a, a big blessing for us. Um, the problem was that after about 10 years, uh, all of that protection seems to be lost, and so um, patients would require a, a revaccination um, probably before 10 years, because when you get to 10 years, it's, it's completely gone. So, um, the, uh, then we've got a newer vaccine, uh, which is um, um, not a live vaccine. It's a, it's a subunit of uh, zoster with, um, um, with an adjuvant. Uh, and so that's uh, 
uh, a more painful vaccine to receive, but it's uh, quite effective. Uh, seems to be more than 90% effective, uh, even in older patients whose immune systems are um, more vulnerable and, and who you might expect to have less of a response. And I know we're jumping around a bit, but let's move back to management and pitfalls in management. Uh, I think the main thing is uh, trying to get the diagnosis on time uh, because of the fact that the um, treatment is not going to be very effective after 72 hours. Um, you really need to get the, uh, the antiviral prescribed right away. And patients may not come in right away, and so that's going to be uh, an issue is uh, you know, educating people uh, to come and um, to come in uh, so you can get a look at it. Or actually, if you've got um, the opportunity to do virtual visits, uh, you should be able to make this diagnosis over a camera uh, because it's, it's relatively easy to do. Um, but uh, starting the, the treatment right away, I think, is the main issue in terms of, um, in terms of management. Uh, with the post-herpetic neuralgia, um, uh, I think it's, it's really just a question of trial and error and uh, finding the right um, treatment for the pain, uh, which can be frustrating over time. Okay, thank you. And on diagnosis, um, I remember years and years ago, this patient who had very severe chest pain and was admitted to coronary care unit. And the next day on the post-take ward round, we examined the patient and all of a sudden uh, a rash had appeared in, I think, maybe T5, T6 dermatome. Is that common, un uncommon, I wonder? Yeah, that's what I had mentioned before. That is, you know, when you've got the pain and you don't have the rash, it's not possible to make the diagnosis, um, and uh, it will appear later. So, uh, people who have really severe pain, uh, you know, it's it's worth, uh, you know, taking another look, and and that's why I, I say it's important to examine the skin because sometimes uh, you're examining them the first time, and then the next time when they come back and they've still got the pain. If you don't have them take their shirt off, uh, you may not actually get a look at it. Okay. Thank you very much, Monica. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful, and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and have a look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again. Thank you.